0: Well, Louisa Tarkington wrote a poem that begins by saying, I wish that there was some wonderful place called the land of beginning again, where all of our past mistakes and heartaches and all of our poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door, never to be put on again. I'm sure that everyone here this morning could make a list of mistakes they've made, regrets, from their life that they wish they could set aside things that they wish they could do over again maybe it's words that were said that we wish we could take back It could be a relationship that's been damaged that we wish we could bring healing to it could be something that we've pursued in the past that now we see was taking us down a wrong road and we wish we could turn back so we turn in our Bible to Galatians chapter 1 and verses 11 through 24 today. What we're going to find is the Apostle Paul was a man who had made mistakes in his past. He was a man who had regrets from his past. And while he could not turn the clock back, he could turn to Jesus Christ, which he did. And as he turned to Christ to be his Savior, what God did is he wrote the word grace across all of the mistakes of the past. God wrote gro- grace across the the things that Paul had done where he had been a persecutor of the church, a killer of Christians, one who had denied and blasphemed the gospel. God wrote grace across his life, and because of that, God's blood washed away the sins that had been committed by Paul. As we read in the Old Testament, uh, a book that Paul was very familiar with was Micah. Paul was a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, and he, he knew what Micah seven eighteen through 19 tells us. There it says, "'Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity "'and passes over rebellious acts "'of the remnant of his possession? "'He does not retain his anger forever "'because he delights in unchanging love. "'He will again have compassion on us. "'He will tread our iniquities underfoot. "'Yes, you will cast all of their sins "'into the depths of the sea.'" This is why Cory Ten Boom's father was fond of saying God takes our sins and he throws them in the deepest ocean and he puts up a no fishing sign. As you think of that picture of a no fishing sign over your past and your mistakes, unfortunately what too many of us do is we cast our line back into the past. We want to dredge up our sins. We want to bring back the mistakes we've made and we don't live in the freedom that comes when God has forgiven us. I can tell you as a pastor, I have way too many conversations with far too many believers who are living their life as prisoners of the past. They tell me about their regret, the mistakes they've made, about the shame and the guilt that they carry for stuff in the past. And as they're rehearsing it to me, I remind them that God has written grace over that, that God has washed away those mistakes through the blood of his son, Jesus, Paul wrote another letter for us. It's called the letter of 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he tells us there, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. As you're sitting here this morning, as you're thinking about the sins and mistakes from your past, as great as those have been, I think they probably pale in comparison to the sins of Paul that we're going to look at today. Sins, as I said, where Paul was a persecutor of the church. But as he found forgiveness in Christ, what he found is that God uh, not only forgave his past, but he gave Paul a new beginning, a new future. And he went from a persecutor of the church to a preacher of the gospel. So I invite you to look with me now in your Bible as we begin reading in this letter of Galatians that Paul wrote. He says in Galatians 1, 11 and following... For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and I returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us, Is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. When we began looking at this letter last week, you'll recall that I told you Paul was battling a group of religious teachers on the Jewish side called Judaizers. Judaizers were those who were trying to draw people back into the religion of J- Jewish works and, and rituals. They were Jewish loyalists who said that the Mosaic law had to be followed by new believers in Christ in order to be saved. These new believers, as we saw, were in this area called Galatia, this southern province of the, that Rome had established in what is modern-day Turkey. And Paul had been there on his first missionary journey. He had been going throughout preaching the good news of grace, this gospel of grace, and many were coming to faith. And that region was predominantly Gentile. And so these Judaizers came in and said, you as Gentiles who have now turned to the promised Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, you need to become followers of Judaism. You need to follow uh, the law. And, And Paul was battling against him saying, no, this is a false gospel. No, you don't have to do that. So what the Judaizers tried to do is discredit Paul. They said, well, Paul's not really an apostle. They said Paul's not one who has received his message from God. His, his message and his ministry are man-made, which is why we saw last week uh, where Paul started this letter defending his call as an apostle, saying he had been appointed by God and not through the agency of man. And we talked about his conversion as he encountered the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. And Paul goes into the same set of arguments here where, where he says, my gospel message in verses 11 and 12, I didn't receive this message of grace from man. As you think about messages of, of grace or, or the gospel, because they're anything but grace, the word grace literally means unmerited favor. And as you think about all the religions of the world, there is no other religion than Christianity that says God did it all for us. All the man-made religions say we have to do something to get to God. Works, rituals, giving of stuff. But God is the only one who gave his son, Jesus Christ, and, and through that revelation of Christianity where he says, I gave you my son and he died on the cross to provide the way home to heaven. That is the gospel message. And all the other religions of the world say you have to do something else. When you think of your, uh, what you did to get to God, the only thing any of us ever did was provide the need for it. We sinned. We provided the need. But there's nothing else that we do uh, in terms of, of us receiving this gift of grace. We believe by faith in what God did for us. And so what Paul says here in verse 12 is that he neither received it this message from man, nor was it taught was he taught this by man. Now Paul interacted with other Christians before he became a believer. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. Remember the first Christian martyr? Paul was holding the coats as Stephen was, was killed, as rocks rang down, and he heard Stephen asking God not to hold his sin against them. In this Damascus Road appearance of Jesus, as we'll talk about further today, as he went into the city of Damascus, uh, Paul was still blind. For three days he was praying and fasting. And, And God appeared to another believer there in the city named Ananias, and he said, go and lay your hands on Paul. And Ananias said, this guy's killing Christians, God. We know why he came. I don't want to go there. And God said, I've set him apart. And he went and he prayed for Paul. And Barnabas was one, as we'll see, he interacted with, uh, not only through his first missionary journey, but as a co-pastor of the church in Antioch. So Paul was around other Christians, but what he makes very clear here is my message and ministry came directly from Jesus Christ. Now this is in stark contrast to the Judaizers who said our message comes through, as Paul just said, I defended our ancestral traditions more zealously than anybody else. If you look at many Jews today and you talk to them, they they do not actually read the scriptures themselves. What they do is they read the rabbinical commentaries, the midrash, the things that others have said about what the law says. And Paul was one of those. He studied under Gamal. Now, Paul knew the law, but his teaching was coming through the traditions of others who were interpreting what the scripture said. And what Paul says here is the first evidence that this message of grace is directly from God is, is the story of my own life. As you look at verse 14, he says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul says to these Judaizers, you guys are the junior varsity squad. He says, you're you're sitting here talking about how zealous you are for the law. And he says, you look at my life. I was at the pro level. Not only did I know the law, not only did I study under the most famous rabbis of the day, but he said, I was the one who was going around and saying to anybody who said you needed to come to faith in Christ that they needed to die. He said, if they opposed anything that I said, I I would force them to accept it. We see what Paul was doing in Acts chapter 22. There in verses 4 through 5, Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can attest. From them I also received letters to the brethren, and I started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. He goes on to say in Acts 26, 10 through 11, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem, not only did I, he says, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem, not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities." Paul says, you guys are claiming that somehow I got exposed through the church to these claims of Christ, and and, and it kind of polluted my thinking, and now I'm teaching this to others. But as he told them here in verses 11 through 12, I didn't receive this gospel of grace from man. And he says, just look at my life. My life is proof of this. He says, I was never a fan of Christianity. I was not somebody who was sympathetic to the Christians. I killed them. He said, I wasn't somebody who thought, well, let me hear your point of view. He says, I shut it down. And he says, I was this this radical, violent opponent of the gospel going so far as to say, if you told me Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins, I would say, well, you have to die. And then he did everything he could to make that happen. Paul says, I was bent on death and destruction, motivated by misguided zeal. And then comes the key word... In every Christian testimony, that word is but. But God. But God intervened. God broke through the darkness as He revealed Himself to Paul. Now, as we talked about, Paul's conversion came in Acts chapter 9. He was on the road to Damascus. He said, I was on my way to foreign cities to persecute believers there. And he had left Jerusalem. He's going to Damascus. And along the way, the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ, appeared to Paul. He, he had this blinding light that literally knocked Paul to the ground. And he hears the word, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he sees the resurrected Lord, in flesh and blood form. Jesus is talking with him. He's there. And he. Paul says, you're real. What the Christians are saying is real. You did rise from the dead. You are the promised Messiah. And he goes into the city of Damascus, being led by his traveling companions, because Paul is still blinded. And that's there where he was praying for three days when Ananias comes. And Ananias lays hands on him. He prays for Paul to receive the Holy Spirit. The scales fall off his eyes. Paul becomes uh, clear not only in his physical vision, but who Jesus is. He's baptized there. And then he begins to preach in the synagogues of Damascus that Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to God the Father in heaven except through what Jesus did. And as this is happening, the Jews who are there in Damascus as well as back in Jerusalem say, Whoa, 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 Paul, what are you doing? You're our champion. You're the guy who was destroying the church. You're there to arrest Christians. And now you become one of them? And you're leading other people to Christ? And so they said, we've got to wipe out Paul. And they went to kill Paul, and God revealed that was going to happen. And so Paul, uh, Acts tells us, was let out through a window in the walls in a basket at night. This guy who was used to walking into cities with all the pomp and circumstance, the the great Pharisee is here, suddenly is sneaking away under cover of darkness because they're trying to kill him. Paul was one at that moment who had been the greatest critic of Christianity, and he made a U-turn. He stopped persecuting Christians and he became a preacher of the gospel. This picture of a U-turn is what the word repentance means. You've probably had people tell you, well, you need to repent of your sins. Repent literally means that you have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It's where we realize, I'm going down the wrong road. And we literally stop, turn around and go back in the other direction. And Paul had been running from God. He had been pointing uh, people at the cross and saying, get away from that, that's, that's heresy. But Paul found out, no, that's the way home to heaven. As Jesus said in John fourteen 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Paul said, I stopped. I turned around and I went to the cross of Christ. I became a believer and I began to preach to others. You need to receive Paul, receive this gift of grace. You see, what happened is Paul not only changed his life, but he changed the direction of his life. Think about who Paul was, this Pharisee, this Jewish loyalist who hated anything opposed to the law, this guy who, as a Jew, said all Gentiles, Gentiles were called dogs by the Jews of the day. Paul said, I hated Christians. I thought I was better than the Gentiles. And when I came to faith in Christ, God changed everything in me. And I now became, he says in Galatians 1.16, a messenger of grace specifically to the Gentiles. These people I hated, I was now trying to save. This church that I was persecuting, that I tried to, to destroy, I now became a preacher of the good news I want you to think about your life this morning and what it was like before you became a believer in Jesus Christ. Do you remember what your old way of life was like? Do you remember the road that you were on? Do you remember the destructive things you were doing, the addictions or habits or other things that were taking you farther and farther from God? And when you came to Christ, the U-turn that came in your thinking, in your life, This is what the gospel does for us. God takes us away from these destructive things and he brings us to life in him, not just the eternal life we will have in heaven, but the life that we have here on earth. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly here on earth. Now, as Paul gives his testimony of the change that Christ made in his life, this should be an encouragement to any one of us who is here who has a friend, a family member a coworker, a classmate, somebody we serve with in the military, who, who you're looking at and you're saying, this person is so opposed to the gospel. This person is mean to me anytime I ever mention my faith. This person is somebody who ridicules Christianity, and there's no hope, no hope that they'll ever come to God. Are they worse than Paul? No. And as we look at the life of Paul, It's an encouragement to us of how God is in the business of changing lives. If God could take someone like Paul and turn him from a persecutor of Christians to a preacher of the gospel, what can God do with that friend or family member of yours? Now, you may be thinking, well, you know, Roger, if if God would do what he did for Paul and show up in this blinding light, appear to my, my family member or my friend, well, then, you know, if something supernatural like that happened, well, then, you know, yeah, I can see how they come to faith. Do you realize that when any person, any one of us, anybody you can think of in the world comes to faith in Christ, that it's a supernatural event? Every single one of us has had a supernatural, miraculous encounter with Christ to turn from who we were to have the word grace written across our life. And while the details may be different, the process is the same for all of us. Because as you look at verse 15, Paul says, God set me apart even from my mother's womb and he called me through his grace. That's what we see in the the letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 4 through 8, as God is revealing through Paul's pen how we're saved, it tells us in Ephesians 1, 4 and following, just as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. That word lavish literally means to pile on top of and more and more and more. And what is it that God just keeps heaping upon you and me? Grace. Unmerited favor. It means we did nothing to earn it or deserve it. You see, what we deserve by how we live our life, what we earn, is not entrance into heaven. What we earn is death, separation from God. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages, what we earn, the wages of sin is death. But, there's that beautiful word again, but God. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, we deserve to be separated from God for all eternity, but God offers us this free gift of eternal life. Paul says, I was headed for destruction, but then God intervened. God set me apart. If you were here last week, you'll remember we saw that Paul talked about those who were set apart for destruction. That word anathema spoke of things that were under the ban. And Paul says, there are those that are set apart for judgment and destruction. But here, God is talking through Paul's pen to us about how we have been set apart, not for destruction, but new life. And it comes through Christ and what God has done for us. He intervened in Paul's life. And he's intervened in our lives. If you're saying, well, Roger, I've made such a mess of my life. I'm so far from God. God would never come after me. You're wrong. Because God tells us in Romans 5, 8 that he demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were far from God, while we were running, while we were in rebellion and disobedience... God came and he died for us. I said that seeing Paul come to faith here should be an encouragement to any of us who are thinking about somebody we know who can't be saved. It should also be an encouragement as we think about our own salvation. Because we're sitting here saying, I was a sinner, I was far from God, and he saved me. And this is what this message of grace is about. God is in the business of changing lives. Do you believe that? I don't think you do. I do <laughs> You know, last week when I was preaching on what the gospel of grace was, there were three people in this service who came up afterwards and said, I prayed that prayer. I received the Lord as my Savior. One was a woman who was in her 70s who's been in church her entire life. And she said, I didn't really understand what grace was. God's in the business of changing lives among us, changing you and me. There are some here this morning who do not yet know who Jesus Christ is. You came in here and you're curious and you're wondering, is this man named Jesus really the Son of God? Is he really a prophet? Is he really somebody who, who was real? And did he come and die on a cross? And what he did, did it really save me? And the answer is yes. Grace is what God did for us. And if you're here saying, well, Roger, I've come to a point where I knew that at some point in my life. I'm a believer. I know Jesus. Praise God. The question is, are you preaching that message? Are you sharing the good news of the gospel? Because God has called all of us to be witnesses of this great message. Every believer in Jesus Christ has a testimony, and we are to share. We're to share our testimony And as you share the story of grace in your life, it centers on the gospel, not not what you did, but what God did for you, what God did for me. And as you think about somebody telling you to give your testimony, it doesn't mean we're going to bring you up here and put you on a platform and hand you the microphone and say, uh, tell everybody the story of your life and how God saved you. God calls on us to share our testimony, not just in a large setting. He may choose that for you. But it happens in one-on-one interactions when you're sitting across the table and having coffee with somebody. It can happen as you're riding in the car somewhere and you're talking to your friend. And as you're you're sharing your testimony, don't feel like you have to preach. I I see people get all worked up and they put on their stained glass voice and they, you know, okay, we're going to... And the other person's getting all uptight too because you are and, you know, just talk. Talk. And as you talk to somebody, don't use Christianese. You know, all those big words that people don't know what you mean. Some of us don't even know what they mean. What's propitiation? Well, Jesus is the propitiation for your sins. Well, okay, what does that mean? So define your terms. When you share the gospel, when you share the testimony, tell somebody in plain English what it means. When you say to somebody, you're a sinner, explain what sin is. Sin means to disobey. Last week I gave you an illustration of if you shoot 100 arrows at a bullseye and 99 of those arrows hit the bullseye, but just one is outside the mark. That's the literal meaning of the Greek word, to miss the mark. It means you were less than perfect. As you share the good news of the gospel, recognize that first you have to get people lost. There are people who don't think they're sinners. There are people who don't understand what it means to be a sinner. They think, well, that's a mass murderer or somebody like that. And you have to help them understand. Some of you laugh when I say, have you ever stolen a cookie? Uh, Well, that's sin. And for some people, that's all. I've talked to people who tell me, well, I'm not a sinner. And I say, well, actually, the Bible disagrees with you. Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. I had a man read that and go, I don't like that. And I go, well... (laughs) God wrote it. That's the the fact. And so I ask him, have you lived a perfect life? Have you ever never lied, cheated, stolen? Well, yeah, I've done those things, but I've never killed anyone. Well, you know, sin means to miss the mark. So tell somebody that. Help them to see you're lost. And because you're lost, that's a big problem, because the penalty of death is what the Bible says comes as sinners. Remember Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life through Christ Jesus our lord and so as you share your testimony as you share the gospel these are the type of things that, that need to be a part of it and and your testimony is a part of it tell your friend your classmate your coworker what god has done in your life say look i was lost but now i've been found I was far from God, but God provided the bridge through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, this is where I talk to some Christians who say, well, I don't ever share my testimony. My testimony is no good. I don't have a life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so it's really boring when I tell somebody, well, I was born in a Christian home. I had believing parents. I went to church my whole life. And at some point along the way, I realized, hey, I'm I'm lost. And I became a believer in Jesus. And they say, you know, it's It's not worth sharing. How wrong are you in thinking that way if that's your your story? First, thank God that that may be your story. You know, I grew up in an abusive home, got kicked out of the house at the age of 16, my three kids grew up in a home where they had a loving mom and dad, and they came to faith early in their life. And their testimony is just as powerful as mine. In fact, their testimony may be more relevant to many people today because most people have not had the kind of life I did. But they can say, well, you know, I thought I was a good person. I haven't done any bad, bad things, so I'm, I'm going to heaven. And if you're somebody who's able to say, no, no, you're lost just like I was because good people don't get to God by being good. So share your testimony. And as you share your testimony, don't leave it there. Come to a a point where you invite somebody to receive God's gift of grace. Ask the person, have you ever received God's gift of grace to you? You know, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and say, have you ever taken that step of faith? Would you like to do that now? Now, as you do that, Please don't bully the person. If the person says, no, no, I'm, I'm not ready. Don't go, well, you better shake or beg, turn or burn, fly or fry, because you're going to hell, you know, if you walk out this door without ever receiving Jesus. Don't do that. Don't bully the person, right? But don't be afraid to say to the person, may I ask you why you're not ready to receive the Lord? Is it because you have a question? Is there something that you're still struggling with about who Jesus is or what he did? And you will have people who say, yeah, I've got questions. Well, fantastic. Follow up with them. Meet with them. Share, say, ask the questions. Let's find the answers. If you don't know what the answers are, tell the person, I don't know, but I'll find out. Or I'll bring you to somebody who can help answer these and then follow up. But sometimes what you'll find is the person is just saying, well, really the reason I don't want to come to Christ is because I don't want to change my life. I kind of like what I'm doing right now. I've had people who will tell me, well, I'm just not ready. And I'll say, is it because you have questions? Oh, yeah, I have lots of questions. I'll say, okay, let me ask you this. If I were to be able to answer 100% of your questions, would you still be unwilling to receive Jesus? And some will honestly look at me in the face and say, yeah because I don't want to change my life. And then you have the conversation about you love your sin more than your Savior, and there is a day where you will be separated from God. But it's not up to us to bring the person to salvation. It's up to us to bring the good news of the gospel to the person and let God do his work. The Bible says God is the one who draws all men and women to himself. It's not your responsibility to save anyone. It's our responsibility to share the good news of the gospel and let God do his supernatural work in their life, which is why an important part of sharing your faith that many of us maybe don't do enough of is to pray. Pray before you talk to the person. Pray while you're talking to the person. Pray after you've talked to the person that God would either take the truth that he revealed to this person and root them in it or that he would remove the obstacles to them coming to faith. If you've never thought through your testimony, I have some homework for you. I want you to go home today, and I want you to write out your testimony. I want you to think through your testimony. Now, don't feel like, oh, this can be a term paper. I've got, you know, all these years of my life I've got to write. What you need to be able to do is boil your testimony down into an elevator speech type of, you know, message. Five minutes or less where you can share with the person what God has done in your life and who God is. The reason you hear me share the Romans road over and over and over so much is because I want you to know the Romans road. I have people say we should rename it the Roger road because, you know, you talk about we're all, you know, Romans 3.23, 6.23, Romans five eight, Romans 10.9. Just memorize those verses. There is the gospel. So go home and write down your testimony. Be prepared to give that hope that you have. Paul was sharing his testimony with others, and after he had this encounter with Christ, we've talked about how he how he became a believer there on the road. He was baptized. He began preaching the gospel, and the, the Jewish authorities were were trying to destroy him. And what we find in Luke's narrative, if you're reading through Acts nine and Acts nine twenty six. Luke just fast-forwards to Paul's trip to Jerusalem, but here in Galatians, what Paul does is he says, I want to fill in what happened during the three years between my coming to Christ and my coming into the city of Jerusalem. You see, Paul didn't jump into the spotlight of doing public ministry in Jerusalem. That's where the center of the church was. That's where all the, the you know, things were happening, and it would have been very easy for Paul to go from Damascus back to Jerusalem, and everybody goes, didn't you leave as, as Saul the Pharisee, and now you're Paul the preacher? But instead what he did is he goes away to the wilderness, he tells us, of Arabia. And this is a very important part of the work in in Paul's life. We talked last week. You remember I used the illustration of a plant that was newly planted. The Greek word is a neophyte. And it says in the scriptures that we are not to promote a new believer, literally a neophyte, into places of leadership because they could fall away. And this was Paul. Paul was newly planted. He could be uprooted. There was all this stuff that could come. And and so what God did is he takes him away to the wilderness for three years. Now, we're not told a whole lot about those years, but in Acts 26, 16, Jesus had told Paul he would appear to him again. And it was probably during this time. Remember, all the other apostles had had three years walking with Jesus, learning and being taught by him. And Paul gets this time away in the wilderness To not only encounter Christ and hear from him, but he also was able to uh, be able to just meditate on the scriptures. To look deeper into the law and see where where the promises about the coming Messiah were all fulfilled in who Christ was. So the Bible, as you look at Paul, it's it's full of hidden times where God takes a, a believer away to begin to prepare a servant of his. We see it in, in, in Moses, in Elijah, in Joseph, and others like Paul. Personal time with God is fundamental to the Christian life. It's not enough that you just come on Sunday and hear the Scriptures taught or maybe go to a midweek Bible study here and there. Are you spending time in the Word personally where you're meditating on the Scriptures, where you're listening and learning from God Personal time with God is fundamental to the Christian life, but the Christian life is also not a solitary one. We see this in verses 18 through 19 where Paul says, Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem. Why? To become acquainted with Cephas. Cephas is Peter, Peter the rock. And I stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Remember, James was, was a physical half-brother of Jesus, along with the other brothers and sisters. Mary and Joseph had children after the virgin birth. And James was one of those guys who mocked Jesus. Ah, oh, you say you're the son of God. Go to Jerusalem. Go do those miracle things. And then James had a miraculous encounter with the resurrected Lord after Jesus had been crucified, and he became a believer. And James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. James wrote the book of James that you find in the New Testament. He was an Orthodox Jew. He understood what the law was and how it doesn't save us, as you can see in James. And so Paul uh, meets with these two. He said he was there for 15 days. Now, 15 days is not a, a, enough time to develop a systematic theology. You see, Paul isn't there in Jerusalem to learn the message. Remember, one of the things he keeps telling us is, my message did not come from man, but it was a direct revelation of God. I go overseas and I teach in seminaries, and I teach missionaries and pastors and local uh, leaders about Theology and pastoring and, and evangelism and all the things that are needed. And as much as I can pour into them in two weeks, it's not enough to develop a full systematic theology. So that's not why Paul's in Jerusalem. He says, I'm there to become acquainted with, to have fellowship. If he was there to work out his theology or to check in on on his full gospel and everything that was happening, like we talked about last week in the Jerusalem Council in A.D. 49, then all the apostles would be there, as happened in the Jerusalem Council. Remember, the Jerusalem Council is where they said this stuff the Judaizers are teaching is heresy. The gospel is the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ. And so... What the Judaizers were saying is, well, back in Jerusalem, where the big church is, and the temple, those Christians are following the law. And Paul says, no, I went and met with Cephas, and I went and met with James, the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And it says that they and the other Christians are rejoicing in the truth of the gospel of grace that I'm preaching to you. Now, the fact that the gospel taught by Paul was the same that the other apostles was teaching is another evidence Paul is giving here that his message and ministry are from God. I will talk to people who will tell me, well, you know, you can't trust the Bible. It contradicts itself. Anybody ever had somebody tell you the Bible contradicts itself? I've not had a single person ever who can show me where the Bible contradicts itself. If you're here today and you believe that, please come see me after church. Because I need to see what you have seen that nobody else has seen for 2,000 years. Because the Bible does not contradict itself. The Bible is is a very interesting book. That's what the word Bible literally means. Biblios literally means the book. And the Bible is made up of 66 books that were written over a period of about 1,500 years The first books of the law, the Torah, were written around 1400 B.C. The book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, was written in 90 A.D. It was written by 40 authors, 35 that we know that are named. 40 different authors wrote over 1,500 years on three different continents in Europe, Asia, and Africa. And the entirety of the Bible says the same thing. We talked last week about Joseph Smith, who came up with the false gospel of Mormonism in 1830. One man couldn't even keep his story straight through the Book of Mormon as well as all the other books they've added. The Pearl of the Great Price, Doctrine of Covenants, all these other things. They keep trying to explain the inconsistencies. The Bible is consistent in its message from beginning to end. The Bible revealed who Jesus Christ was back in Genesis At the very beginning God said man and woman will fall. They will sin. And there will be a need for a savior. And he will come and the serpent, a a description of Satan, will come and bruise his heel He will wound him, but the the Son of God will crush the head of the serpent. What happened on the cross? Death bruised Jesus. Satan thought he won, but Jesus crushed sin, death, and Satan at the cross. From the very beginning, the message has been consistent. Paul, as a Pharisee, knew the law inside and out from beginning to end. He was able to look at every prophecy pointing to the Messiah, and he said every single one has been fulfilled in who Jesus is. He says, My message, my ministry, all the things reveal who Christ is. And this is yet another proof that we can trust what the Bible says. So, again, if you're here and you have a question and you have something that you believe is inconsistent, please come and see me. I'm not here to prove I'm smarter than you because I'm not. I'm here, though, under the help of God with the Holy Spirit to help you look at the Bible and understand it. Do you know why it's consistent over 1,500 years and 40 authors and three continents? Because there's only one author. One author, the Holy Spirit. God wrote his word through supernatural inspiration, through the pens of those 40 or so authors. And that's why the message is the same, because God wrote it. And it's why Paul says, my message is the same as what the other apostles have received, because God revealed it to them and to me. You see, even though Paul was chosen outside of the other apostles, he wasn't off lone rangering it. He wasn't over here uh, doing his own thing in what he taught or how he walked with God. And if you're somebody here today who says, Well, I've got, I've got the Bible myself, I've got the, an understanding, I've got podcasts or commentary, so I don't need to be in church, I don't need to be around other Christians, you're wrong. Because what the Bible tells us, one of the things is it says in Hebrews 10.25 is not to forsake our own fellowshiping together as is a habit of some. It says, but we are to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the reason we gather as Christians is not just to be equipped and taught, but it's to encourage one another. This word literally means to spur one another on. It's a word that was used of, of what cowboys dig into the flanks of horses to make that horse get up and go. And part of the reason we gather as Christians is we need to be encouraged at times. Somebody needs to kind of get us to get up and go. And there are other times we need somebody to pick us up. When we fall down, when we're discouraged, when we go to work or school or, or at the base and we feel like, well, we're the only ones who believe this, I want you to look around for a moment. Go ahead and look at everybody around you some of you aren't looking it's okay you're going to look <laughs> you know why I want you to look around because i want you to see you're not alone you have you have reinforcements all around you you have others who say you're not crazy for believing what you believe i believe it too And when you're out there and you feel all alone at work or school or in your your home, if you're the only believer in in Jesus in your family, remember this family of God that you're a part of because God says you you are a part of a larger family. In Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, we're told two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can be one, one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And then it says a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart because not only do we have each other, we have God resident within us. God who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The Holy Spirit who wrote his word. The Bible says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you in First Corinthians 3.16? So as you think about what you're facing in your life today, look around you. It's why at the end of the service we always say there are prayer leaders here at the front. We would love to stand with you and pray with you and support you. We have a prayer leader here, a prayer line here at the church. If something happens in the middle of the week, you can call in and people will be praying for you. You can write on your connection card prayer needs, and then you see the insert in the bulletin each week of those who have said, "I would like this need shared." with the congregation so others can pray for me. We have community connection points through the Sunday school classes we call adult Bible fellowships. Sometimes as you look around, you say, there's too many people here to know, but you get in these smaller groups, and people can know your name. They can know your needs. They can pray for you. We have life groups that meet all throughout the week in homes around the city, so you can go into somebody's home and, again, have, have a community and a group. It's why we do things like the men's retreat that's going to be happening at the end of February and the first weekend in March. I'm going to be there with more than 100 men. And, and we, we gather together as guys just to say, hey, we're not alone. And we want to strengthen you, and we want you to see that you have other brothers to walk with you. And so there are many ways that we can come together to strengthen and support. If you're somebody trying to go it alone, remember that even the Lone Ranger had Tonto, right? God did not make us to go it alone. So we gather together. We, we build up and encourage one another. It's why our vision statement begins, Wayside Chapel is a community. We come together as a community to be rooted in the word, to be reaching out to the world, to be reproducing Christ's followers. Now, as we gather together in community, what I want you to understand is it's easy to come on Sunday morning and be like this bag of marbles, okay? You can say, okay, well, I'm here at church, Roger, and, you know, like these marbles, you know, they're bumping up against each other. They can bang into each other, but because they have their hard shells up, nothing happens, and sometimes what we do is we show up here on Sunday morning we're like a bag of marbles. And we say, well, I went to church. It didn't do any good. What God wants us to look like instead is like this cluster of grapes. Right? The Bible uses grapes as an illustration of our, our walk with God. It says if we abide in Christ, him is the vine. It says that we will sink deep roots. And as we begin to grow, we'll become fruitful. And as you think of these grapes, if I were to do the same thing, I'm not going to because I'd be having grape juice all over me. If I started squeezing these grapes together, what would happen? They would break, the juice would intermingle, and that's where the flavor comes from, right? And so what God says is, he doesn't want us just to be running around looking like this. He says, we're to be like this. And you may be saying, yeah, but you know, I don't, I don't share life with other Christians because it gets real messy. And, and you know, the mess isn't worth it. Well, Did Jesus think the mess wasn't worth it? He left his throne in heaven as God. He took on flesh and blood to walk among us, to go through the muck and the mire of this world, to go through the struggles that we face. He thought that the the mess was worth it to go to the cross and shed his blood to die a death, to pay the penalty of death for your sins and mine. If you think the mess isn't worth it, remember that Jesus came as a servant. He took up a towel to wash the disciples' feet, to be in their life, to serve them. And if you get a little, you know, mess on you from the grapes squishing around, we'll get a towel and clean it up and keep going. That's what God calls us to be in this community as believers. Now, Paul was one who had had his life intermingled. He originally had been shedding the blood of believers, but then he had the blood of Christ applied in his life, and now he was doing life with these Christians. And he was changed by it. In verses 21 through 22, we're told that after he's there in the church in Jerusalem, he goes on to Syria and Sicilia. This area includes Paul's hometown of Tarsus. He preached in that region for several years. And there was revival taking place. Many even, remember he's the, the missionary to the Gentiles. These Gentiles are coming to faith. And the Jerusalem church says, we're hearing about these Gentiles coming to faith. They send Barnabas to go and see what's happening. In Acts eleven twenty through 26, there Barnabas sees the growth of the church. And he says, I need, I need help. And he calls Paul to be the co-pastor of the church at Antioch. And they're changing lives, and that church is exploding. And then they go on this missionary journey, which included this area of Galatia where these churches are founded, and now Paul's writing this letter to them. And as this section comes to a close, we're told in verses 23 through 24 that the churches in Judea were hearing the reports of how Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church, became Paul the apostle, the preacher of the gospel. And it says they praise God because of it. This is what the gospel of grace can do. It can change our lives when we come to Christ. And God has called on us to be those who are changed, transformed by the good news of the gospel. If you're here today and you've never received God's gift of grace, I invite you to do so. Remember Romans ten nine says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. James 1, 12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. If you're here and you've never received his gift of grace, I invite you to do so today. And for those of us who have received that gift of grace, God calls on us to be messengers of the good news as we leave today. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for giving us the gift of your son. God, as those who have received this gift of grace, we ask that you would help us to be men and women, boys and girls who leave here today and go into our community, to the bases where we serve, to the neighborhoods where we live, to the offices and work trucks and places that we will be as we work in the city, as we go to school in the classrooms. Would you help us, God, to be those who are messengers of grace? to share the testimony of the change that's come into our life. And, Father, again, I pray if there's anyone who's not yet come to know your son Jesus as their Savior, today they would receive that gift of grace. They would say to you, God, I'm a lost sinner. I recognize I owe a penalty of death. And I thank you, Jesus, that you died in my place, dying to save me and rising from the dead to show that you were who you said you were, the Son of God who saved me from my sins. We pray these things in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.